from the Acts of the Apostles. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem, and at this sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, in our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. People of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. And then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. Some years ago, I, I went with few of my friends down to Knoxville to hear a joint lecture by Will Willman and Stanley Hauerwas, who are two theology type, <laughs> they're, they're two theology professors. 
They're from Duke. And they were both, they're both really opinionated and sarcastic, which I think is rather off-putting in clergy types. <laughs> what? <laughs> the gathering was small enough that we were able to go up to the front afterward and introduce ourselves to Willimon and Harwas, which is really exciting stuff for us. They were gracious as we explained how much we enjoyed the lecture, and <clears throat> Harawas quickly moved on to talk to somebody else. But Wilman said, yeah, it's, it's fun to do these things with Stanley, except I always feel like I should be apologizing for him. Stanley's like a theological insurrectionist. We do these sort of lightning raids, and he stirs up trouble, and then we take off. And we all laughed. We, we thought that Wilman had just described the kind of thing that each of us would love to get paid to do. See, I thought the whole encounter was kind of coming to a close, but Wilman he was just getting warmed up. He said, you know, we were at this place one time, and this young Methodist minister came up to us. It was after a presentation. It's it sort of like this one. And he was in tears. And he said, look... I don't know what to do. A few years back, I, I took my first placement out of seminary in North Carolina, and everything seemed to be going fine, but the, the KKK had demonstrations, and I stood up in the pulpit, and I said, hey, we're Christians. We have to speak up when confronted by injustice, especially the kind of blatant hatred that's being spewed by these white supremacists. Well, the young minister said, there were people in the congregation who thought I was being too political, and they started making noise, and the next thing I knew, my district superintendent told me that they were going to move me to a new congregation, one where there wasn't so much controversy. I mean, it was difficult, but I figured that the next place had to be an improvement, and it was. For a little while, until we, there were some racial tensions in the school, and once again, I find myself in the pulpit preaching about how Christians need to speak up on behalf of the oppressed and the marginalized. And afterward, one of the leaders of the church came to me and said, son, we don't talk about that kind of stuff in church. And I said, well, I'm not sure what gospel you're reading, but the one I follow says that I can't keep quiet in the face of this kind of stuff. And I no sooner got home than I had a call from my district superintendent telling me that they were unfortunately going to have to find me another more suitable congregation. And so we moved to the place where I'm at now, and everything has been going just fine until recently. We've had a group in town trying to run off migrant workers, saying that they're ruining our economy and public life. Of course, I can't keep my mouth shut. I stood up in church last Sunday and I said, hey, come on, we're Christians. Treating immigrants like that, 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 that's not who we are. Sure enough, I got pulled aside after Wednesday night services by somebody who wanted me to know that people were getting upset with me taking up for the, the, the Mexicans. Willeman said, he, he, he looked at Stanley and, and me and he said, I, I, it's starting all over again. It's the same thing, only this time my wife said that she likes this town and the kids are happy in school and she's not moving again. I, I, I feel so alone. What, I, what do I do? 
Willman said, I felt awful for this young guy. I mean, I almost started crying myself. But Stanley looked at him and he said, well, God's a mean son of a gun. I hope nobody ever told you this was going to be easy. And he just turned around and walked away. And Willman said, I, I, I could have killed him. And I remember thinking, man, that seems pretty cold. It's not very pastoral, right? I mean, the poor guy's looking for a little compassion, and Hiawas just lets him have it. Kind of a jerk. But a few years later, I was having some problems at the congregation myself, and I, I'd taken a, an unpopular position, and I was catching grief for it. And there were special elders meetings, special board meetings, special executive committee meetings, and I was... I was getting scared I was going to lose my job over this one. So I, I, I had little kids, and I had a wife who loved where we lived. And I just felt so alone in that moment. I mean, you can see the irony here, right? And I thought back to what Howard Wass said to that poor young Methodist minister, hope nobody ever told you this is going to be easy. And I thought, you know, sometimes, huh, actually... That's one of the most pastoral things that a minister can hear. <laughs> well, why is that? Well, the temptation is to believe that you should win everybody's approval. If you're going to do the right thing for all the right reasons, then everybody should just give you some applause, right? I mean, how can anybody be mad at you? You're just trying to do the right thing. See, that's not how it works, is it? Sometimes doing the right thing can get you fired. Well, ask Jesus. I mean, sometimes doing the right thing can get you killed. To folks who claim that Jesus makes everything better, I want to say, have you ever actually met this Jesus? <laughs> I mean, I don't know about you, but every time I bump into him, he's stomping around in steel-toed boots, busting up furniture, and smashing the good dishes. Following Jesus can introduce troubles into your life that you never would have known if you'd just stay home and take a nap. In fact, I was so upset with my situation that I just, I had to get it out, so I sat down, I wrote Hauerwas a letter. I just wrote him a letter. Laying out the problems that I was facing. And I did it more as an exercise in sort of clearing my thoughts than because I expected any kind of response. I mean, I remembered how he dealt with that young Methodist minister, so I figured he'd just sort of ignore it if he read my letter at all. But I was home one day on my day off, and the phone rang, and I picked it up, and I heard, Penwell, this is Stan Hauerwas. And I was shocked, and I said, hi, Dr. Hauerwas. And the first words out of his mouth were, so are they going to fire you? And I said, honestly, sir, I don't know at this point. And he said, well, keep your head up. Following Jesus isn't for the weak of heart. Anybody who tries to live the way Jesus told us to live better be prepared for heartache and disruption. And he's right. I was thinking about Harwas the other day working on this, on the Pentecost sermon, and I mean, Pentecost is, is a day when the church celebrates the promised coming of the Holy Spirit and its own birth, which is a pretty big deal, even though we don't, as I said, pay quite as much attention to it as Christmas and Easter. 
But I mean, why do you think that is? I mean, why does Pentecost receive such short shrift? Well, I have a suspicion about it. If you remember where we are in the story, Jesus' disciples have recently lost their leader. And Jesus, as the book of Acts opens, has spent 40 days with his followers after his resurrection. But as we learned last Sunday, he then takes off and returns to God in the ascension. And Jesus' followers are once again sort of left without their leader. But you see, Jesus didn't just take off on them. He promised them that the Holy Spirit would come to them, bringing them the power that they would need to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And generally speaking, we hear this promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit as good news, right? The disciples are afraid of what will happen to them when Jesus leaves, and he says, don't worry, Holy Spirit's coming. It'll be all right. Now, the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete or the parakletos in Luke's, uh, excuse me, in John's gospel, which we usually translate as something like advocate or comforter. And, and, and comfort seems to be precisely what the disciples are looking for as they face an uncertain future without the very leader who'd gotten them into this whole mess in the first place. But as David Lowe's has pointed out, when the Holy Spirit comes, everything starts to get uncomfortable for Jesus' followers. I mean, it sounds good when Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will give them power to be his witnesses until you start to look at what being a witness for Jesus would ultimately cost the disciples. In the book of Acts, witnesses for Jesus wind up humiliated, imprisoned, run out of town on a rail. Sometimes they wind up dead. And you can imagine the disciples experiencing the coming of the Holy Spirit in a rush of violent wind, tongues of fire, as initially comforting, right? That's just sort of like the, 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 the Avengers of the X-Men showing up on the scene just in time to save the day, the day. But the next thing you know, the Holy Spirit is leading these anxious disciples around by the nose, getting them in trouble every time they turn around. Now, read this way, the coming of the Holy Spirit brings more disruption than comfort, more challenges than victories. And it makes me wonder if we do ourselves any favors when we pretend that the challenges that come from following Jesus are somehow an aberration, that when our faith costs us something that there's been some kind of breakdown somewhere along the line. But what if, as the nerds say, holy disruption in the life of Jesus' followers is a feature, not a bug? That is to say, what if the power that comes to us from the Holy Spirit isn't just about making us comfortable, but about making us capable of standing courageously, of, <clears throat> of withstanding the disruption of the evil systems that oppress God's children, bearing witness to the expansive love God desires to manifest in this new reign, which is even now unfolding before us? What if the most pastoral thing we can tell ourselves when we run into trouble because we've 
taken a stand for our faith, when we've fought against injustice and intolerances, <laughs> I hope nobody ever told you this is going to be easy. Now, don't get me wrong. Given a choice between being comfortable or being faithful, I'm often just as likely to choose the Barca lounger and a cup of coffee. Doing the right thing can be difficult, but maybe the power Jesus promises us when he sends the Holy Spirit isn't just the power to be a sort of spirit, spiritual superhero, but simply the power to endure, to persevere. In the name of the truth, the strength to, 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 to hang on when it looks for all the world like we're going under for the last time. And you say, oh, okay, smart guy, that's all right, fine. But so what does this power even look like, you know, practically speaking? Well, you take a look at the story of the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, <clears throat> and you might be tempted to locate the power in the violent wind, Right? or in the tongues of flame, or, or more likely in the ability of the disciples to speak each one in a different language. I mean, it's all miraculous. It's all amazing demonstrations of power. But, but you see, I think those are only signs of a more significant power at work. Take a look. It's after all the fireworks when the real disruption occurs. Peter stands up and he addresses the crowd. Yeah, yeah, Peter preaching. That does take some courage. I mean, I get it. But wait, I mean, if we stop there, we might, <coughs> we might be tempted to think that the, the power of the Holy Spirit is manifest in courageous individuals. God's lone warrior. And <clears throat> I won't deny that courage is essential, especially as it's manifested in individuals. But see, Peter isn't a lone individual when he stands up to address the crowd. You look closely at the text. Luke tells us that when Peter raised his voice and addressed them, he was standing with the eleven. All of them together stood before the crowd. You see, the power of holy disruption is present when the followers of Jesus stand together to offer witness to the truth. The power of the Spirit is less to be found in the heroic individual than in the community knit together by the power of a common witness on behalf of those whom Jesus loves. Now, let's face it. There's a lot of pain in the world. We know this. Pain caused by injustice and hatred and fear. I mean, you only got to turn on the TV to know that <coughs> there's a problem and that and who are the latest targets of those in power? I mean, trans kids now have to worry not only about the daily bullying that they have to endure, but they also have to worry about the bathroom police singling them out for further humiliation. 
Muslims just looking to live life, raise a family, contribute to a better world, have to worry about political demagogues and people stirred up by intolerance, having daily to face the pressure of a culture that has made pretty clear doesn't want them here, women who want nothing more than to become the people they have the potential to be receive the often subtle but persistent message that our culture puts out that they're not good enough, not smart enough, not rational enough, not male enough to fulfill the promises of their gifts. And if they don't listen, if they keep at it, then they get told in more explicit ways to sit down and shut up. Children go to school with the terror in their hearts of yet another wingnut with an AR-15. And still they're told by those who should be defending them that they're expendable. Unfortunate sacrifices on the altar that's been built and gilded by the NRA and their willing collaborators. So many of our, our, our black siblings go to bed each night with the stark awareness that it may be them or their children, or their parents, or their friends who find themselves face down in the street struggling to say, I can't breathe. The poor, the disabled, those without health care, those racked by mental illness, the houseless, those afraid they'll get fired or evicted if anyone finds out whom they love, the unemployed, the, those against whom the deck seems hopelessly stacked because of their race or ethnicity. We know who the targets of the powerful are. We have a sense of the injustice that people face. But you see, we who have been given the Holy Spirit, we have the power together to be Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We have been called to unleash that holy disruption on the world. You and me, We've been called. To make evil and injustice uncomfortable. Together. Look, nobody said it was going to be easy. But it doesn't have to be lonely. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.